For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we've been studying this book of 1 Corinthians for the past two months or so. There was this, in the early days of Christianity, there was this really new group of Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. It was a huge city and it was a huge Christian community there and they had huge problems, tons of problems. And what we have here is we have a letter from a guy named Paul to the Christians here in this city of Corinth. And his letter is he's trying to help weigh in and try to help them work through these different problems that they were experiencing. You know, last time we saw that one of the big problems they were having was division, was just spreading through this church. People were saying, well, I follow this Christian leader, and I follow this Christian leader. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And uh, there was sort of a power grab. Unspiritual people were rising to the top and trying to gain um, attention, trying to gain power, trying to gain influence. You know, this group had problems. And so what we've been studying is a very systematic flow of thought where the Apostle Paul has to go back to the basics. He says, look, you guys, there's a problem with the very way that you're thinking about yourselves, about what it means when Christians get together, what, what's the, the meaning of life. And so he has to go back to the basics. And he started in chapter one, we saw, he said, what is the cross? You know, the cross epitomizes... What it means to be a Christian, it epitomizes the wisdom of God because what you have is, is God, the ultimate leader, who had all the power, who had everything, and he gave his son to die on the cross for you, to rescue you. He died in your place so that you could spend eternity with him. And so the cross, it might be foolishness to a lot of the people looking on, but he said to us, it is the very power of God, the very wisdom of God. This is how you become Christians in the first place. And then he says, okay, so what's a Christian in chapter two? He explained the, the deep transformation that happened when you received Christ and when the, God's spirit came to dwell inside of you and how the old is gone and you're a new creation now. And we spent a couple of weeks on chapter two. Then he said, okay, now what is the church? It's not a building. No, it's a community. It's a spiritual community. And he gave different pictures. He says, it's kind of like a family. It's kind of like a field where there's a, you know, there's, there's a harvest growing. Uh, it's kind of like a building, like a, like a temple even. Not just any building, but a temple. And he, he talked about when you become a Christian, you, you join the family. You, you become part of the field. You become part of the building. And you also have a job to do to build up the family, the field, the building. Well, this week, he takes this a step further. What's the cross? What's a Christian? What's the church? Now, he says, what is a Christian leader? And that is what we're going to talk about tonight. He gives four different pictures of Christian leadership. Remember that there were leaders, unspiritual leaders, rising to the surface here in Corinth. They were also attacking Paul's leadership, part of it as a way for them to get power. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see the outworking of the backward wisdom of God when it comes to leadership, that Jesus taught the last will be first. And if you want to be great, you should be the servant of all. And so Paul gives us four very vivid pictures of Christian leadership, and we'll just work down through each one of these as we read chapter four. So 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse one, Paul says, this then is how people ought to regard us, us leaders. He says, we're servants of Christ 
And we're stewards entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. All right, what do these two different words mean? The first, the first picture he gives, he says, we're servants of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. That's how you should think of me. And that's how we should think of Christian leaders. Well, when we do a word study on this word, the huperetes, there's different types of servants and slaves in the Greek literature. It's sort of interesting to look at how this word is used. The oldest reference to this word, it's actually used of Hermes, the messenger of the gods, executing the will of Zeus, and thus having behind him the power and authority of Zeus as chief of gods. So it's kind of got divine connotations. He's a servant of Zeus, Hermes is. Socrates, you can read his writings, he says, I'm under divine orders to support and guide my fellow citizens. He viewed himself as on a mission from the gods, a huperetes, a servant of the gods. He also says there's also examples from everyday life you can read in the Greek literature. For example, the military world. The, sh the carriers of shields are weapons. They always had to be ready. And so you'd have the soldier, and he'd have someone carrying his weapons, and they had to be there, right there, right next to the soldier whenever they needed those. And he says, we're kind of like those. Or the officer, whose job it is to supervise the provisioning of the troops. Paul says, yeah, you know, it's like the commander says, go take these troops over here and accomplish this objective. And Paul says, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Jesus Christ. He says, we're servants of Christ. And so we're there for whatever he needs us to do. In civil life, the physician has his hooperetes, who not only assists him, but also carries out minor medical tasks on the doctor's instructions. You know, it's like Paul's like, I'm standing there and I'm holding all the surgical equipment. And he's like, scalpel. And Paul says, scalpel. <laughs> and he says, suture this right here. And he's like, yes, sir. And he sutures that right there. You know, this is, it's not mindless work. It's important work, but it's at the assistance of another. It's, I am, I am your hooperetes. And I will write, be right here, whatever you need me to do. That's what I'm going to do. The contractor, you're building a building. You've got to have Hooperetai on whom he can rely. He says, I want you to build this wall just like this. I want, you to, I want the plumbing to go just like this. And you say, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I will do that. And you've got to make sure the electricity gets wired up or you could be in for trouble. The same applies to judges. Judges had Hooperetai in this day. The judge would... He'd come down with a decision, and then the hooperetai would take the person and would carry out the judge's wishes. Paul says, that's what I am. God comes down with a decision, and I say, yes, sir, I will do that. He says, the service is not just a superior with clear rights over the inferior. It also implies acceptance of the subordination. In other words, the hooperetes is distinguished from the doulos, which is another word for slave by the fact that the hooperetes is free, and in some cases can claim a due reward for his services. He's a little higher than the normal word for slave here. And the emphasis here is, is not just on the position, but also the voluntary nature of it. And Paul says we choose to become hooperetes. We choose to be the assistant. We choose to be right there, willing to do whatever Christ wants us to do. In fact, these were the first words that Jesus ever said to Paul when he confronted him on the road to Damascus. We studied about that back in the book of Acts. He said, I have appeared to you to point you as my huperetes and my witness. He says, I'm, you're going to be my new assistant, Paul. 
And, um, you know, this would have been a, a pretty awesome thing to be a hooperetes to Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine being a hooperetes to a great, powerful, you know, surgeon, a, a very high-ranking military general. This was not something to be looked down upon. You know, Jesus taught the voluntary nature of servant leadership. He said, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Yeah, everybody wants to volunteer for that kind of leadership. The kind where I get money, where I get prestige, where I can make people do the stuff I don't feel like doing. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. I'm voluntarily putting in myself in the low position. I don't want to be leader so other people can do the jobs I don't want to do. No, I want to be leader so that I get to do the jobs that other people don't want to do. That's the picture here. And that is ultimately what Christ modeled because he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is Jesus Christ leaving the privileges of heaven, humbling himself, taking the low place, the position of a servant, humbling himself down even to death, death for you and for me. That is the good news we've been studying here in, in 1 Corinthians. And that is the good news that makes it possible for us to be saved. That's the cross. It's the message of the cross. And so we're servants of Christ. And Paul says that's what we are. That was not the attitude that these power-grabbing, divisive leaders had in this Christian community here. And this is not the natural attitude that we have either. This is a very spiritual attitude. It's focused. It's like my eyes are on my master, and I just want to do whatever he wants me to do. That's the perspective here. It's the servant perspective. Where I, it says, I just want to help the Lord in whatever way I can. I want to do whatever I can here. I can't offer much. I'm not the great surgeon. I'm not the, I'm not the general. I'm not the master architect. But, you know, I can do something. I want to do something. I want to, this, is, this is a life of meaning. This is a life of purpose. This is the fulfilling life. This is why people get in to Christian leadership. It, it realizes people are here to see him and not me. You know, they didn't come... To, to see me, the assistant. No, they came for him. And I want, to, I want to try to focus the attention back up on him in whatever way I can. He sets the agenda in the next steps. I'm not telling him what we're going to do next. No, he's telling me what we do next in this project. And, you know, my time, it's yours. I've signed up for this voluntarily. This is not something I, somebody forced me to do against my will. This is something that must be chosen voluntarily. It's not something you can make somebody do. And if you make somebody do it, then they remain unconvinced. No, this is something we freely take on. I hope nobody is, I've heard some people be like, well, I just I felt like I had to be a leader or something like that. No, don't, I, I don't ever want that. I want, I want people that are voluntarily doing this because they want to. It's the point of the hooperetes. And so this is, this is a choice that's freely made because we want to do it. My reward comes from him, not from other people. I realize that as well. I, I'm really serving to please the master, not these other people. I might do some good things for others, but I'm serving to please him. And also my role's significant. It's important that I do it well. This is not meaningless. No, this is important. It's just as important as it fits into the bigger thing. And that's the emphasis he's trying to make with the Corinthians. So picture number one, he says, we're servants of Christ. That's one way to think of us. The next picture is related 
He says, also stewards entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. A steward of God's stuff. A servant of Christ and a steward of his stuff. A manager, if you will. This is, uh, he says, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that won't be found trustworthy. So what is a steward? This is the household manager. This was also, uh, it was higher than just the regular old household slave. This was a person that was promoted to a higher level, was in charge of the master's stuff. In fact, the household manager owns nothing but manages everything. Paul says, yeah, we're like that. We own nothing. Everything we have was given to us. But we have a certain amount of responsibility to manage God's stuff, his stuff that he's entrusted to us. It's his, not mine. And this one, the, the nuance here with this word is more of a decision maker than the hooperates. You know, the hooperates is standing there handing the tools to the surgeon. You know, the household manager has sort of broad, more broad parameters, you know, like, like a financial manager or something like where I give my money to this person and they're supposed to invest it for me. You know, Jesus told a lot of parables about these types of guys right here. He's like, the master's going away and he gave some stuff to his guys and he left. And then he comes back and he's like, what did you do with my stuff? That's what, Paul had that totally in view here. And the point, important thing is faithfulness. I, I'm supposed to do what I think the master would want me to do with his stuff. Paul says, yeah, we're like that. We're like stewards of God's stuff. And you know, good stewards get more stuff to manage. Jesus tells one parable where he's like, who's the one that the master's gonna entrust stuff to? The one who's faithful, the one who does good. And, and if you do good with the little bit that he's entrusted you, well, that's a chance to get some more stuff. And so more comes to those who are faithful. On the other hand, bad stewards get fired. <laughs> bad stewards don't get anything entrusted to them. And Jesus told a different parable in Luke 16 where exactly that happened. This guy was not doing a good job and the owner's like, you're fired. And that's the way it tends to work. And God says, if you're not faithful with the little thing, why would I entrust important things to you? So what has God entrusted to us? Well, he tells us two things right here in this passage. One, he says, we're stewards of the mysteries that God has revealed. Stewards of the mysteries of God. What's that talking about? Well, it's God's truth contained in Scripture. What an incredibly valuable book that God has given us, his perspective on history, his perspective on life, his teaching about himself, about what we're like, about what the world is like. Uh, these are mysteries that have been revealed in his word. And he, you know, how silly would it be if you're the manager put in charge of the stuff and you never even read the instruction manual from, from the owner? And God says, you know, how are you doing, you know, really, how are you doing learning those truths? That would be one thing to think about when it comes to being a steward of God's stuff. How are you doing learning these truths that he has entrusted to you? How are you doing faithfully communicating those truths to others? You know, it's not about novelty, it's about faithfulness. That's, that's, what, that's what we come together here on Monday nights for. It's to sit down and to look at the mysteries of God and my job is just to try to be as faithful as possible in reading and explaining these things to you guys in hopes that you will then do that for other people. 
So the mysteries God has revealed, that's one thing God has entrusted to us and groups really go, go astray when they abandon the mysteries that God has been entrusted when they're not faithful stewards of those. What else has God entrusted to us? He tells just a few verses later. He says in verse seven, he says, guys, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's a great question. So what is he saying here? What has God entrusted to us? Well, anything that you have. That's the point of this verse. Everything, including your very life, is not something that, you know, it's something that, that you received. You know, even your life, God is the one who made that possible. He is the one who gave you life. He's the one who brought you into existence. Those gifts that you have, those were given to you by God. You know, the position of privilege you were born into, the family you were born into, those were given to you by God. Every one of your abilities, every one of your possessions, Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And so anything you have is not ultimately yours. It's his. And uh, someday you're going to have to give it back. Naked we came into this world, naked we shall depart. Life is but a, a short pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness, as one theologian said. And so every one of your abilities you have for a time, your possessions you have for a time, your life you have for a time, and then you give it back. And when you give it back, that's like the master that went away and he comes back from his trip and he says, now what did you do with the stuff I gave you? And so what this means is that our pride should be replaced by gratitude. Pride, the great, one of the, perhaps the greatest danger, the greatest temptation for human beings. The sin of Satan, scripture says, the original sin was pride. And instead of pride, maybe we should try a little more gratitude. Maybe we should thank God for anything good and everything good in our lives. We should also exchange our ownership mentality for a stewardship mentality. What do we mean by this? Well, it's an owner, you know, thinks in this way. The owner says, how can I use my abilities to get as much as I can for me? And this was the way they thought in Corinth. They were like, my abilities, my gifts in speaking, I'm just going to shine and people are going to look and they're going to admire me. The stewardship says, God, how can I use these abilities you've given me to serve you? It's a very different perspective. That's not mine, it's his. I'm not mine, I'm his. And God, I just, I want to serve you. I want to use these faithfully. I want to use these the way the master would want me to. Ownership mentality says, how much of my money will I give to the things of God? Boy, it'd be pretty generous if I gave some my money away. After all, it is mine. I earned it. Steward says, God, how much of your money should I keep to meet my needs? You know, it's, the Bible doesn't teach against private ownership. It doesn't teach communism. But what it does teach is that you are a steward. And your stuff is God's stuff. God, what, what should I do with your car that you've given me? How should I use that? What should I do with the, the house that you've given me? What should I do with the different things you've given me? And how can I use that for you? How much, and, and then how much do I need to keep back for my own needs? It's not teaching asceticism and taking a vow of poverty. No, it teaches a vow of generosity. How can I maximize 
my generosity and using the things God has given me for his good. And one day, when you have to give it all back anyway, he's going to reward you for how you were faithful in investing in things that really matter. He goes on. So we got, he says, think about us as a servant of Christ. Think about us as stewards of God's stuff. Those are two ways we need to think about ourselves. He also says in verse 3, he says, to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court, Corinthians. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. No, the one who examines me is the Lord. And so, who am I, Paul says? I'm like a defendant in God's court. And so suddenly we bring in the courtroom imagery. So you can imagine this courtroom here. You know, so Paul says, here's me. I'm the guy here. I'm being examined. And, you know, you can see the judge at the front of the courtroom there in his big chair. And what was happening at Corinth is you had Paul sitting there and you had all of the Corinthians heaping so much criticism upon him. You know, you got one guy in the crowd going, ah, you're not a real apostle. <laughs> They're just shouting things out from the, from the, the stands here. Oh, you, know, you wish you were like Peter, or you wish you, you, you wish you were a good speaker like Apollos. This guy, this guy, he wasn't even with Christ. He came along later after the fact. Another guy's like, ah, you're just in it for the money. You know, Paul, he just, he tells you what you want to hear so he can get your money from you. That's really what he wants. He's just like these traveling salesmen, preachers that come through town and they try to, get, they try to take you for all your worth. Another guy's like, ah, you're a terrible speaker. You don't talk good, Paul. Give me a real speaker like Apollos in here or like the, the famed Corinthian sophists, the rhetoricians. They know all the flourishes. They, they use their cue alliterations brilliantly. <laughs> yeah, you're too harsh. Why are you so mean? You're not loving us the right way. Paul, what's up with this harsh letter? Why are you coming at us so hard? You're not very loving. These other people seem a lot more loving. You don't even seem to care about me. You're not loving me right, Paul. You're a liar. He says he's going to come visit us, and then he doesn't come. He's, he, just, he just changes his mind for no good reason. And all there's all this criticism coming in upon him, and this is the way it will be if you step up to lead for God. It's pretty draining. And Paul says, my eyes are right here on the judge. I'm a defendant in God's court. People can yell all they want from the stands. It doesn't matter because it says, really, it's a very small thing. Not just a small thing. A very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Paul's like, what do I care about the people in the crowd? They're not the ones that matter. That's not what this courtroom's all about. In fact, he says, I don't even examine myself. You know, the critiques, they don't just come from outside. They also come from within. He's like, man, am I too messed up to serve God? That thought went through his head. 
Certainly. He's thinking, man, I, I didn't do everything perfect with the Corinthians. There were things I probably could have done better. That's one of the really difficult things to think about is you think about, I'm fallible. I'm not completely perfect. And I do make, you know, people, Paul is not a Christian perfectionist. But he's, he's able to say in his second letter, he says, no, I, we don't consider ourselves adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves. No, our adequacy comes from God, who's made us adequate. No, it comes completely from God. And that's where I take my stand, Paul says. Yeah, there's room for saying, God, search me, examine me. God, is there anything I'm missing here? But at the end of the day, you know, if God's not pointing things out, then we need to also learn to take our stand under the cross of Christ. And there's wisdom in that. And so Paul says, I'm not even examining myself. My motives, he says, are really confusing. Why am I doing this? I can't sort it all out. The heart is deceptive. It's like looking into a dark well. It's hard to see what's in there. No, he says, look, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet even by that I'm not acquitted. That's not why I'm okay. No, he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. That's where I take my stand. And so Paul says, my courtroom, it doesn't look like this. My courtroom, he says, looks like this. It's just me and the judge, me and the Lord. I'm sitting here. I've tuned the rest out. I've tuned out the accusing voice that even sneaks its way inside my brain. And this is difficult to do, but it must be done. And that, Paul says, that's what I think of all your criticism of me. The one who examines me is the Lord. I'm in his courtroom. And as a result, he says, therefore, guys, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. He will disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Yeah, there's a certain amount of judgment that just must be delayed until the end because God knows the hidden things. He knows the motives. He knows the hearts. He's the one who's going to reward like we talked about last week, remember? The reward that will come at the return of Christ. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so let's just talk for a little bit about unrighteous judgment. The truth is that God says that people, including many Christians, judge way too much. This is sort of what Christians are known for, unfortunately, being judgmental. Romans 14 says, you then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. You have no right to stand in judgment over that other person. Back off, judgmental Christian, Paul says. He says later in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about these, these guys. He says the problem is they're measuring themselves by themselves and they're comparing themselves with themselves and they're without understanding. We're trying to make judgments and it's like I'm better than you at this and I'm, uh, my whole standard of reasoning is confused because I'm starting reasoning out from me. Unrighteous judgment can take a lot of different forms Judging others' motives, though, is one that comes up right here in this passage. For me to say, I know why you were doing that. For me to judge another person's motives. You know, I might be able to ask questions. I might be able to say, was it because of this or that that you did that? But ultimately, it's unrighteous judgment. And it's, just, it's sinful. 
And I didn't know this when I was a young Christian, and I thought I knew why people did things. And the problem is you get into all kinds of conflict and un, you know, just unfairly judging people because you're judging their motives. It needs to stop. Judging my own motives is also unrighteous judgment. I do think there's a certain reflection that needs to happen about why am I doing this, but if it's really a problem, what you'll start to see is the bad motives are coming out in bad actions. And so that's usually how God will show the wrong motives is he'll show it by the actions that come forward. And that's more the time I would start to worry about motives. Um, Judging too soon before hearing all the information, that's one of the points he's making here as well, right? Judging before the hidden things come to light, people that jump to quick judgments without hearing the other side of the story. Um, you know, you got to be wise enough to realize the truth of the proverb that says, the first one to argue the case seems right, then comes the cross-examination. It's not until you hear the other side of the story that you can really start to make an evaluation of the situation. Wise people know that, fools don't. Fools jump to conclusions. Self-righteous judgments are a big problem. It's a judgment that then says, you know, it's to the extent that I'm better than you. It's one that the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day did. They denied that they had any sin. Thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like this other person. That is totally sinful, totally unrighteous. And finally, judgments according to any standards other than one set by the judge are also unrighteous judgments. That's why 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And so when we come, when we come in with, with extra biblical standards, you know, really righteous judgment is where I'm just agreeing with the judge. I'm agreeing with what God says. I'm not imposing my own standard on people. No, I'm looking at what he says in his word and I'm holding other people's actions up to that. And so, you know, to judge things based on my feelings, for example, I think is a really common unrighteous judgment. You know, the, you know God says, you're a Christian now. Nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. And we're like, but I don't feel close to God. I feel like God is mad at me. I feel like God doesn't love me. That's an unrighteous judgment. That's a wrong conclusion. That's not based on what God says about you. That's based on how you feel. And spiritual maturity is moving over where I'm evaluating not just other people, but even myself, according to what God says. It's getting more in touch with reality is really what spiritual growth is. There is such a thing as righteous judgment. You know, Jesus said, don't judge according to parents, but judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesus says, I want you guys to be in touch with reality enough that you can tell right from wrong. Isaiah says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That would be unrighteous judgment, calling good evil and evil good. Jesus said, no, you need to learn how to evaluate things properly. Evaluate things rightly. You need to get in touch with reality. He says, for example, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. You know, we don't want to be naive and be like, oh, well, it looks like a sheep. Now you have to be able to see through, you have to have discernment and be like, hold on now, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing, that right there. A shepherd needs to know the difference between a sheep and a wolf dressed up like a sheep. This was a common problem shepherds used to have back then. 
And he says, you, you need to be able to recognize the fruits and you need to be able to, to make a judgment based on fruit. Of course, we just saw a chapter ago, Paul said the spiritual person is able to discern all things. It's one of the advantages of being a Christian is we have a new perspective on things and we need to learn to become more and more discerning people. That's, a, that's an aspect of spiritual maturity. Not self-righteous, not mode of judging, but simply agreeing with God, not climbing up onto the bent, not climbing up into his seat either and legislating. No, simply agreeing with what he has already said. That is righteous judgment. In fact, we'll, see, we'll talk more about this next week in 1 Corinthians 5, where you're going to see an example of Paul's righteous judgment on one of the members here in Corinth. Finally, Paul says, we're servants of Christ, we're stewards of God's stuff. We're defendants in God's court, looking to him and him alone for the verdict. And he gives a fourth and final picture. He says, you guys, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Look at these wealthy Christian teachers. You've become to reign and without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so we might also reign with you. He says, you guys, you're so wealthy. You're so prestigious. It's like you're kings. You know, it's almost like Jesus already came back and you're reigning. You guys, you guys are living in the wrong part of history. I wish Jesus would have come back because then we could be reigning with you. But right now, that's not what he wants. We've, we're here to serve and to give our lives like he did. He says, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display last of all like those condemned to die in the arena. A reference to the Roman triumphal parade. Paul says, fourth and finally, you want another picture of leadership? We're like the prisoner condemned to die. That's what we're like, unlike you Corinthians. There's an old painting of one of these triumphal processions what they would do is when the general would win a big victory, he'd come back and they would build one of these triumph, triumphal arches, like the Arc de Triomphe. You know, in Paris, you've heard of that. So that's one of these triumphal arches. It was like a big archway and it had things on it that were carved onto it to commemorate this battle. And so this, this would then become a monument to the Roman victory over, over Israel, actually. There's, there's a huge one right next to the Colosseum that depicts the Roman victory over Jerusalem. You can even see pictures of them carrying stuff from the temple back to Rome on, on this arch. If you ever go to Rome, it's right next to the Colosseum. But they'd have these arches, and then they would set up this big parade. And they would march into the city, and it would take a couple of days. This parade would last for such a long time. And this is like, like, you know, like the New Year's Rose Bowl parade or something but it would last multiple days, and they would have prisoners at the front of it. That's another key difference from the Rose Bowl Parade and the ones that they would do. And so, you know, the general would be kind of sort of the, the middle to the back, you know, the, the, the senators and the prestigious people in Rome would be walking in, but at the front of the parade, they would put the prisoners. And they would march them in, and then they would kill them, or condemn them to die in the arena, like they would do to the Christians. They would throw them to lions and other prisoners as well. And so Paul says, yeah, Christian leadership. On the one hand, we're at the front of the line. 
But it's not in the sense that you guys think it is. You know, the people at the front of the line of these Roman processions, they're not last of all in the line. They're last of all in status. And literally in those parades, you know, the last are first. <laughs> the ones condemned to die are the ones at the head of the parade. And you got people yelling at them, jeering at them, throwing things at them, striking them. They know that their time is short. This is the glory parade that, the, that Paul says we get as Christian leaders. And he says, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He says, everyone is looking on. This is not just the people in the city of Rome. This is the universe looks on. And it's a spectacle in different senses to different people. You know, the angels in heaven are looking on and they're marveling at what God is doing here on earth. They couldn't believe that Christ came as a baby, that he died on a cross. And now they are just amazed that he's, he's put his spirit in humans, he's adopted them, and now he's working through them to rescue other people. Of course, others are looking on in contempt, like some of the people in Paul's very audience here. They're looking on in contempt. Even fellow Christians attacking and insulting them as Christian leaders, because they're just, they, they, there's all kinds of criticism for leaders. And he says, we've made a spectacle to the whole universe. He says, that's how it feels sometimes. He says, we're fools for Christ. You're so wise in Christ by the wisdom of the world. He says, we're so weak. You're so strong and powerful. I wish we could be like you guys. You're honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty we're in rags, Paul says, brutally treated. We're homeless. Christ himself didn't even have a home. You guys have these nice places. How convenient. Must be nice, Paul says. We work hard with our own hands. He didn't take any money from the Corinthians. When we're cursed, we bless the person that just insulted us. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer as kindly as possible. What do you do, Corinthians? Oh, these things don't happen to you. That must be very nice. We're up here with Jesus at the front of the line, marching to our deaths like he marched to his. And then he says we become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Very interesting word study on these words, scum and garbage. Where did this come from? The origins of these words. They didn't start out meaning these things. They actually were used in, in uh, pagan religious ceremonies. These were religious words. Disaster would strike a city and the people would think, oh, the gods must be angry. We've got to do something about this. We need someone who will give their life as a human sacrifice to take away whatever is causing the anger of the gods. And said, so what would happen? Again, Kittle writes, usually prominent men were offered as sacrifices. The king would offer himself. Members of leading families, pure virgins, etc. But even though those would offer, less estimable characters seem to have been chosen. The low lives of society 
They'd pick a criminal. They were condemned to die anyway. They'd pick ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> Paupers who preferred a brief period of good nourishment at the end of life to prolong starvation. Misshapen people, people with deformities. These are the people they would pick to be drowned, to be killed in various ways, tossed off a cliff, to remove whatever taboo was on our society and hopefully appease the anger of the gods. And what happened was, because only the low lives would get picked for this religious duty, eventually the words came to mean scum and garbage because that was the people who always found themselves in these roles. And Paul says, yeah, we're kind of like those guys. We're the scum, the garbage. We're the trash that gets taken out. We're the people that nobody wants. That's what we're like. That's what Christian leadership is like. That's the vision that he's painting here of spiritual leadership. And you know, it's not that Paul and his co-leaders were dying for the sins of the world like Christ did. You know, Christ, that was unique. He actually paid for sins. But in a sense, after they received Christ's forgiveness, they voluntarily chose to lay down their lives to try to bring about salvation for others. He says, we're laying down our lives. Jesus said, no student is greater than his teacher. I call you to follow in my footsteps. As the Father sent me, so I send you. He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so Paul says, God has loved me so much, I can't believe he saved me. And now I am giving up my life. I'm becoming like those losers that would volunteer to give up their lives. You know, he knew he, his life was ending soon anyway. All of our lives are ending soon anyway. What he wanted was to do something that mattered with it. He wanted to have an eternal purpose. And he says, that's why we become like the scum and the garbage. And so a Christian leader is a servant of Christ. A Christian leader is a steward of God's stuff, owning nothing but managing everything. A defendant in God's court, tuning out the crowds, tuning out even the accusations from within, focused on the judge and pleasing him and his evaluation of my life. And I'm a prisoner condemned to die. Paul says, this, this is the picture, this is the vision of Christian leadership being painted in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And then he says, I urge you to imitate me in verse 16. And he would urge you to imitate him as well. If he knew you'd be reading this today. You know, the world is all about radical commitment for certain things. It's like, I am going to do nothing but study for the next 15 years and I'm going to become a neurosurgeon rocket scientist <laughs> who's also an astronaut. I'm going to build a rocket and go to the moon and do brain surgeries there. <laughs> and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. You've got to be true to your dreams. <laughs> We're like, I am going to win the Olympic gold in curling. 
and I'm gonna dedicate my life to this sport, and from age two, all I'm gonna do is curl for 15 hours a day, and it doesn't matter what else I do, and I'm gonna delay my puberty by four years just because I'm curling so hard. <laughs> People are like, oh, so beautiful, so beautiful. You follow your dreams, you made it at four in the morning <laughs> on a Friday night. Your moment of glory. And then we're like, then we're like, I'm going to devote a couple nights a week to spiritual growth. And they're like, what are you doing with your life? Are you gone crazy? What are you in some kind of a cult? No, 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 you could never spend your life this way. That's so much time. And it's like, they're into high commitment for everything but the most important things. And it's a failure to see life from God's perspective, from Paul's perspective, from the perspective of reality. And so the... One choice before you is, well, you just reject Christ altogether. And some of us here, we, we, we're in the process of doing that. We, we've never received Christ. Maybe you're investigating, though. And you're thinking about inviting Christ into your life. That's the choice for you tonight. But once that choice is made, there's another choice. Is it, I'm going to then hold him at arm's length and pursue these other things. I'm going to live life more like these Corinthian carnal leaders were. Life according to what the world says matters. Is that, is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to go all in? Are you going to embrace this picture painted here by Paul? Are you going to live a life that really means something? Are you going to live a life, not the life of loneliness and addiction that comes from living for self, but the life of love, the life of closeness, the life where... The greatest pain that you experience is not the sorts of pain because things didn't go my way, but it's, it's relational pain. And in some cases, it's the pain of separation because this person who I love, we're, we're, we're parting ways in some sense because they're going to serve God here and I'm going to serve God over there. It's the sort of deep fulfillment, the rich, relational, spiritual life that will be rewarded by the judge someday, by God at, at the day that he comes. And he will reward those who've been faithful to him. I urge you to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. All right, well, that's about enough for tonight. We're gonna pray. Yeah, Lord, you really set the example there when you picked up your cross. And you've also called and uh, turned and called us to do the same. Thank you that by dying on the cross, you made it possible for us to have your spirit, to have your power, to have a relationship with you, to be transformed by your love. I pray for anybody that's never experienced that, that tonight would be the night for them. I pray too for those of us that have experienced it, that we would not take the bait offered by the world system, that we would not give up something that... Um, something that's eternal for something temporary. I pray we would be like the person that gives up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. I pray that we would live lives 
that will be that will be pleasing to you and that we won't have regrets when we stand before you someday at that judgment seat. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.